John 21, beginning at verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Let us pray again. Father, I pray that you would speak to us from your word. I pray that it's, as it's poured over us, you will make us a little bit more like Jesus. Father, we know that we grow in our faith by having the water of the word poured over us. Jesus said, now you are clean through the words which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me. Father, we want to fellowship with Jesus today in that which is his word. We pray, Father, that you would keep our hearts captive to the thoughts that will be suggested today by the text. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand the extent of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. And help us also to know, Father, how we can keep our love fresh and strong and how we can finish the Christian race well and in the way you would desire us to finish it. To hear the words where we're gathered to you, well done, thou good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Father, we love these people. We desire for them to know these things today. Father, keep me from speaking anything that is less than the gospel truth of your word. Minister in our midst, Father, do a holy work here. You are present with us. We have gathered together in the name of Jesus and claim the promise that we're two or three or more gathered in his name based on his work, that he is in the midst. Help us to sense, Father, the sandaled feet walking in our midst. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I've done ministry for a long time. I was ordained in 1973. And I tell you, we could fill a number of churches to capacity with the people that I have seen come to faith in Jesus, grow for a while in their faith, use their gifts to build up the body of Jesus, and then to step aside and kind of sit in the stands and watch the game and more or less wait for the game to be over for Jesus to gather them unto himself. Now, why is it that this is the way with so many believers. The scripture clearly teaches that God saves us, that he adds us to the church of Jesus so that we might use our gifts to build the church of Jesus, to build one another up in the faith, and to make disciples. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7, we read these words. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone, those spiritual gifts, the 
the administration of those gifts. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. Why? For the common good. Yet you know professed believers who started out well, but after a period of time, stopped serving Christ and his church. For all practical purposes, they have joined the church victorious. That's the church in heaven, the church gathered at Jesus' throne, the believers at rest. God has called you, he has called me, to faithfully serve his son Jesus and his body, the church, until we can no longer do that. Should you come to the place in your life where you cannot serve the Lord with your body and your mind, and you still have your mind, if you're confined to bed or to a care facility of some kind, you are to continue to serve Jesus. You're to pray for those who minister to you. You're to tell them about Jesus. You're to pray for those who are actively engaged in the building of the church because God has given them the ability and energy to do that. And those people that come into your room who don't know Jesus, you're to tell them about the wonderful things that Christ has done in your life and to attempt to lead them to Jesus. For people who are believers who visit, you share your experience as you walk with the Lord with them so that they can grow in faith. When Jesus called us to follow him, he didn't attach a retirement date to our call. You won't find one in 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul tells us about having been given these gifts to use for the building up of the church. In Romans 12, 3 through 8, where the apostle calls us to use our gifts to build up one another, there is no term limit. In the parable of the profitable and unprofitable servants in Matthew 24, verses 45 through 51, who is the wise servant? It's the one who's found working right up until the master's return. Now, in our text this morning, John 21, 15 through 19, Jesus teaches Peter and us what it takes to serve the Lord consistently and faithfully until he takes us home in death or returns to gather his church, those who are living at his return, to himself. And I'm going to tell you, this is the only way that I believe a person can pull this off to consistently serve Jesus until his return or until he calls us home. Now, I'd like you to see first Peter's sin. A few weeks before the event recorded here, probably while on the way from the Last Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus would be arrested, he said this to his apostles, you will all, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. Now, you know, you've heard it so many times. Peter is the action apostle. He's the one most likely to speak out immediately. And in Matthew 26, 33, he immediately responds to what Jesus has said. And this is an amazing statement. Though all fall away because of you. I will never fall away. Now, Jesus answers the presumptuous Peter and his brazen belief and his superiority 
of his own character over the character of the others with a prophecy. And he says this in Matthew 26, 34. This is Jesus speaking. Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Now what happens next utterly amazes me when I think about it. Peter has the audacity, Matthew 26, 35, to contradict the one about whom he has confessed properly, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Matthew 16, 16. He takes issue with the God-man who has calmed the sea and fed thousands of people with a little lunch by multiplying the material of the lunch, the one who has raised the dead. Peter tells Jesus, Lord, you are absolutely wrong. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Isn't that amazing that Peter could say that to the one that he has been around and watched for a while? Now, the same night as his audacious boast, there's a charcoal fire in the courtyard of the high priest of Israel. And Peter is warming himself by that charcoal fire. Jesus is inside on trial for his very life. A young maid sees Peter in the dim light of the courtyard fire, and in Matthew 26, 69, we are told, she says, you also were with Jesus. And Peter responds, I do not know what you mean. In 2671, another servant girl saw Peter and said, this man was with Jesus. Peter again denies Jesus, this time with an oath. He says something like, I swear by heaven, I do not know this man. I don't know what you're talking about. Now, a little while later, several people come up to the apostle, and they said, we were told in Matthew 26, 73, certainly you two are one of them, for your accent betrays you. Man's from Galilee, has that kind of accent. The people of Jerusalem know the difference. He did it not just once, but three times. He did it two times after having opportunity to realize that he had been sucked into this sin and to, as the politicians say today, walk back what he said. You know, there have been times when somebody has asked you something and your immediate response was less than true. And then you thought about it for a moment and you said, well, that's not really the way it is. And you corrected what you had said. Peter has opportunities to do this. He doesn't do it. He sticks by his story, what he had blurted out in the moment of temptation. Now think about this for a moment. Denying Jesus is not a great thing to have on your pastoral resume, is it? Your data form, your PCA data form. Will Peter be able to continue in gospel ministry after this? Are his days as an apostle over? Will anyone listen to the sermons of the man who's preaching the Christ that he has denied? Will anyone listen? Will the other apostles follow and serve with Peter after what he has done? What will this act of denying Jesus do to Peter's head? Will he be able 
to ever forgive himself for this huge sin? Will his confidence be gone forever? Will Peter be able to get past his sin, forgive himself, and free himself to serve the Lord and to build Jesus' church? On the night of the betrayal, nobody knows the answer to those questions or the answers to those questions. Even Peter doesn't know. Now, I'd like you to look next at Jesus' probing question. John 21, 1 through 4, the apostles have obeyed Jesus, and they've gone to Galilee to wait for him. Jesus has appeared to seven of them who, while waiting for him in Galilee, have gone fishing, and Peter is included in that group of seven. Now, the Lord has taught these seven soon-to-be church planters, an important lesson about the folly of trying to do a spiritual work in your own strength. And I talked about that weeks ago when I was in this pulpit and I preached the passage that precedes what we're studying today. Jesus taught these seven a lesson by keeping their nets empty at first, and then by his command, filling the nets with a tremendous catch of fish. He and they are gathered now around a charcoal fire, like that fire in the courtyard of the high priest. On this one, Jesus has prepared breakfast, a breakfast of fish that he has created, fish that the apostles have caught at Jesus' command, and some bread. When breakfast has ended, Jesus addresses the apostle who denied him. Now, it's very important to notice the name by which Jesus calls Peter in John 21, 15. It is a very formal way to address this apostle with whom Jesus has lived and served for nearly three years. What does Jesus call him? You have it before you. Jesus called him Simon, son of John. He calls him this again in verse 16. He calls him this again in verse 17. Now, there is only one other time in the New Testament where Jesus calls Peter by this name. And it's after Peter makes that great theological confession, that accurate confession, in response to Jesus' question to the apostles, who do you guys say that I am? And Peter answers the question by affirming before all, Matthew 16, 16, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, Jesus responds to Peter's confession there by saying, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of John, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, that is the rock, and upon this rock, I will build my church. Based on his confession of Jesus, uh, confession of Jesus, Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter or Rock. In doing that, Jesus was making a public declaration of the key role that Peter is going to have in the building of Jesus' church. Now, here in John 21, Jesus addresses this apostle who denied him three times in the high priest's courtyard by the old formal name, not the new post-confession Jesus-given name. He is not addressed as Peter the Rock, 
but as Simon, son of John. And Peter understands what that means. He knows he has not been the unmovable object, the rock, suggested by the name Cephas. And Peter longs to be forgiven and to be restored to a place of trust and service in the church of the risen Christ, whom Peter deeply loves. Now picture the setting again. Picture the setting. Peter and Jesus and six other disciples are sitting on the shore of the Lake of Galilee, having finished breakfast. It is important that the dialogue that takes place between uh, Jesus and Peter be witnessed by other apostles. Why is that? Well, one of them is going to be used by the Holy Spirit of God to record this event in the life of Peter and Jesus in the scriptures that we have before us in the Gospel of John. But it's also important that this dialogue be witnessed by these other five men so they can tell the rest of the infant church and the apostles who aren't present how Jesus deals with sin, how he deals with Peter's sin. Now, you've probably heard some sermons on the two different Greek words that are used in our passage for love. There are some people who think that agape is, you know, the, the strongest kind of love known in the universe, the deepest kind of love possible. And then there's this other word for love. There are actually several, but the other one being uh, from the verb phileo, which is kind of brotherly love, family love, familial love, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Now, some teachers of this passage say that Jesus first asked Peter if Peter loves him with this strong, strong, strongest kind of love, and Peter responds with a lesser word for love, the phileo word, and then Jesus goes down to Peter's level and asks Peter if he loves him with uh, brotherly love, with strong affection. But if you study the Gospel of John, you will find that Jesus actually uses these two words for love interchangeably at times. In John 3, <clears throat> 3.35, John says that Jesus says, the Father loves agapao, the strongest form of love, people say is the strongest form of love, the Father loves the Son. In John 5.20, Christ says, for the Father, he's speaking now about his Father's love for him, Jesus is speaking, for the Father loves phileo, this supposedly lesser form of love, the Son. John does the same thing in the interplay in John 11 with Martha and Lazarus. Now look, Jesus likely uses these two different words for love interchangeably here in the way we use synonyms when we talk or write. The really important thing about all of this, the important thing to note in John 21, is that Jesus is forcing Peter by repetition to examine his soul, to examine the kind of love that he really has for Jesus. Now, if you're new to Christian faith, we're glad you're here. If you are not yet a Christian, we're glad that you're here. But if you've been a Christian for a while, you know that sometimes Jesus can be incredibly gentle, and sometimes he can be tough as nails. But gentle or tough, he always asks 
acts for the good of his own, his children, his people, his sheep. Here we see, I believe, a very tough side of Jesus. When he asked Peter, 2115, do you love me more than these? Jesus is taking Peter back to an incredibly painful uh, time in his life. He's taking him back to that incredible boast he made before all the apostles um, on the night when he denied Jesus. There, dripping with self-confidence, the fishermen had the audacity to say, though they all fall away on account of you, I will never do that. I will never fall away. Peter, in effect, had said, Jesus, the love I have for you is way much stronger than the love that these people have for you. And I'll stay by your side at the cost of my very life, but Jesus, don't count on the rest of my brothers here. And Jesus takes Peter back to that boast and his failure. And he says to Peter something like this, remember where your confidence in your own strength got you? Are you still prepared to boast that your love for me is stronger than the love these men have for me after what happened to you back then? Can you say without the strength that I give you, that I give to all who ask for it, that your love is unwavering? You see what Jesus is doing? He's kind of pulling a scab off the wound in Peter's soul, uh, in his heart, and he's doing it in front of these other men, and that causes intense pain for Peter, I believe. But Jesus does that in order to make Peter free of the diseases of arrogance and pride and the habit of acting in his own strength. If these guys don't get it, there is not going to be a New Testament church. They cannot build the church in their own strength. This is a spiritual work. Now, the Spirit of Christ has probably worked in you in the way Jesus is working here with Peter. He's probably reminded you at times of your failure. Uh, failure brought about by trying to do things in your own wisdom, your own power, your own resources, your own strength. He's not doing that to keep you discouraged by the memories of the past, but as a means of keeping you from sinning again in the same way. These reminders can be grace to us. Peter's sin, Jesus' probing question, Peter's forgiveness and restoration. Why does Jesus ask Peter this question, Simon, son of John, do you love me three times? Peter is right when he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. When Jesus asks questions, it is not because he doesn't know the answer. Remember the fish in the net, children? Do you have any fish? Jesus knew they didn't have any fish. He knows the answer. The questions are for our benefit. The threefold repetition of do you love me, that do you love me question, gives Peter opportunity to deeply examine his heart, to examine the strength of his love for the master. But the repetition also gives Jesus three opportunities to affirm Peter to the others present and to affirm the fact that Peter is forgiven and Peter is being restored to his office of apostle. 
after each affirmation by Peter of his love for Jesus, Jesus says, either feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, or feed my sheep. What did Jesus die for? What did he die for? He died for the sheep. What did it cost Jesus for the sheep? To buy the sheep, to purchase the sheep. It caused him the suffering of the worst physical death, I think, known to man, and the experience of suffering hell for the sin that the sheep deserve. Nothing cost him more to purchase us from the kingdom of Satan than his death there on the cross, and he did it for the sheep. He paid the full price of their redemption. When Jesus turns his sheep over to Peter, he is saying, Peter, you are forgiven and you are restored. The dark night is over. Go back to gathering and feeding and leading and correcting the sheep. And Jesus is telling the other apostles as well, I trust Peter. You can trust him too. I have forgiven and restored him. It is also a message for them, and it's a message for us because the same grace that flows to Peter in his repentance is for us when we repent of our sin. When we take our sin to Jesus and repent, meaning we turn from our sin, we promise renewed obedience with the strength, the grace that he gives us, our sins are forgiven. His sacrifice cleanses us from the vilest of sins. Do you really believe that, that you've been cleansed of every sin? You know, we believe it for a lot of sins, but there are a few maybe that you've committed in your life that because of the ramifications of that sin, you have a hard time forgiving yourself. He has forgiven every sin. John, who witnessed the forgiveness and restoration of Peter to usefulness in the building of the church, may have had this event in mind when he wrote in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all, all unrighteousness. Have you experienced God's forgiveness initially? Have you been to him? Have you been to the cleansing flood, the blood that flows from Jesus' cross? You can do that right now by acknowledging that you have sinned, Believing what Jesus said, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And telling Jesus that you want him more than anything, it's your desire to be cleansed by his sacrifice and to follow him. You can do that right now in a prayer of recognizing your sin and recognizing the only one who can cleanse you and telling him you want him. When Christ forgives sin, it's as if the sin never happened. Jesus sends Peter out to preach, to heal, to lead again, and to be an example of one who is in the process of becoming progressively more like Jesus. With Jesus' forgiveness, there's restoration. He doesn't forgive and treat us like damaged goods. When he forgives, he restores. Now, Peter's sin is devastatingly painful to him. I'm not minimizing that. Peter was a horrible example to unbelievers. Those unbelievers in the courtyard of the high priest, they knew that he was a follower of the rabbi whom he said was the Messiah in the past. But Peter's sin, destructive and inexcusable as it was, 
was going to be used by Christ to make Peter a better apostle and shepherd in the church of Jesus. In Luke 22, 31 through 32, Jesus told Peter, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is telling Peter there in advance that what you are going to learn about Satan, about pride, about self-confidence, about your sin, when Satan tempts you, and it's going to happen, will help you train other believers and help to keep other believers from sinning like you sinned. This event was preserved by God for us. We are to forgive and to restore sinners in the way Jesus forgave and restored Peter. We are not to put repentant addicts and divorced persons and unwed mothers and fathers and embezzlers and even murderers in the penalty box forever. Jesus wants forgiven people to be restored by the church and put back on the ice, take it out of the penalty box. We often worry about what the world will think if we do this. Could it be that the world will come to think we're about forgiveness and grace and restoration? Could very well be. Well, let's answer my question. Why do so many Christians leave the game to sit in the stands to wait for the game to end at their death or to end when Jesus returns? Our text leads us to conclude that the reason people fall out is either their motivation to serve was wrong from the beginning or they've lost the proper motivation while they're playing the game. Now listen to the interplay and closing of Jesus and Peter. Jesus, do you love me, Peter? You know I love you. Jesus, feed my lambs. Jesus, do you love me? Peter, yes, you know I love you. Jesus, take care of my sheep. Jesus, do you love me, Peter? You know I love you, Jesus. Feed my sheep. Love for Christ is the only motive that will keep us faithfully serving to the end. I've examined this. There is no other motive that will work in the church of Jesus. We've got to keep our love alive. How do we do that? We make use regularly of the means of grace. Uh, when we are spending time with the lover of our souls in private and public worship, when we're reading the word, meditating upon what God in Christ has done for us, when we're praying and participating in the sacraments, our love for Christ remains strong, and that strong love for him compels us to use our gifts, our energy, our time, our wealth to gather and care for sheep. The work of battling the world, the flesh, and Satan while working to build God's kingdom is so arduous and at times so disheartening that if love for Jesus lessens or if our motive for working in his church is anything other than love for Jesus and the church Jesus loves, we will get discouraged and we will drop out of the game. Listen to what John Calvin says. By these words, Christ means that none can faithfully serve the church and sustain the task of feeding the flock unless he looks higher than men. In the first, the office of feeding is itself laborious and troublesome, for nothing is more difficult than to keep men and women under the yoke of God. 
Satan now attacks with all the stumbling blocks he can to break or weaken the courage of good pastors. Add to this the ingratitude of the many and other causes of weariness. Therefore, he will never steadfastly persevere in his office unless the love of Christ so reigns in his heart that forgetting himself and devoting himself entirely to him, he surmounts every obstacle. Calvin was writing to pastors, I believe the same is true for every Christian who is wholeheartedly engaged in the work of building Christ's church. If you want to finish the race successfully, if you want to hear Christ say, well done, thou good and faithful servant, do all in your power to maintain the ardor of your love for Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the encouragement it brings to us. Thank you, Father, the conviction that comes when the Holy Spirit takes it and points out our sin. But thank you for the grace that flows from the one who died that we might be freed from our sins and live for him. Father, if there's one here who doesn't know Jesus, we pray that you would continue to woo them by your spirit and bring them savingly to him. Help them not to put it off, Father. None of us knows when that last beat of our heart will take place. Father, move them to do business with the risen Christ, the Christ of Calvary, the one in whose name we pray.